I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 9 today, and uh, we're going to be continuing our series through the book of Genesis. I want to thank those of you who prayed for, maybe you didn't know, I was gone last week. Uh, I was in the cornfields of Iowa, uh, literally um, in some places. Uh, I spoke at a conference in Iowa, and uh, while there are, you know, occasional moments when my heart misses the Midwest, it's never in the winter. Uh, it was frigid. Uh, I don't know what's going on with my blood uh, since coming to Virginia Beach, uh, but it was absolutely freezing. Uh, so I'm glad to be back, and I also want to thank those of you who are praying for our family. Um, this next week weekend is a big one for us too. Uh, perhaps you've heard uh, our oldest daughter Emma is getting married. Uh, and uh, so uh, because of COVID, we've had to be careful with like how many people, you know, can be there and so on. So I hope you understand that. Uh, we would love to have all of you uh, at this wedding. And, uh, but, you know, that, that's coming up for us too. So thank you for prayers. Uh, dads, if you've been through this before, I, you know, I've helped a lot of people uh, get married before in my life, but I've never been the dad uh, that was a part of this. And so there's a lot for me to learn still in life, I'm, I'm seeing. But uh, we're looking forward to that. We're celebrating that together as a family. So thank you for your prayers on that as well. So we come to uh, Genesis chapter 9. Uh, we started a few weeks ago into uh, the Noah story, story of Noah. And this story, we've been going scene by scene through it. There are four major scenes we're taking our time to walk through. And so far, we learned that the majority of the flood story is about, uh, or the majority of Noah's story is about the flood, the great flood that destroyed the entire earth. And in that story, we learned that the rains begin and the flood waters come and they prevail and prevail and prevail. Remember that in the text? They keep prevailing. It's repeatedly mentioned. After the prevailing of the waters, after they overcome everything, then we learn Noah and his family must wait and wait and wait. That's what we talked about two weeks ago. For over one year, Noah and his family waited in the ark without hearing from God, and their waiting was not done until God said that it was done. But their waiting is now over in Genesis chapter 9, and the final scene what occurs in Noah's life is what happens after the flood. This scene I would call the blessing scene. God's blessing is extended on Noah and his sons. Now as the chapter begins, you can imagine there would be unbridled optimism for Noah and his families are coming out of the ark. What will God do with this new beginning? By the end of the chapter, however, there are sad reminders of human sinfulness and the curse of God. It's one of the big lessons we'll learn from Genesis chapter 9 is that blessings come mingled with sorrow and judgment. Often this is true, isn't it? In a fallen world where sin still impacts us, blessings often come mingled with sorrow and judgment. The title of the sermon today is When Blessing is Mixed with sorrow. This is true not only of Noah in this ancient story, isn't it true of our lives as well? I was just thinking about last year, for instance. 
This past year, in a pandemic, we enjoyed a mixture of blessing and sadness. We experienced the blessing of new conversions, many baptisms as a church. We also had people join our church. These are blessings. Yet others in our assembly have mourned the loss of health and lives and relationships due to COVID. We know this to be true as our experience in a world that is touched both by the consequences of sin and the grace of God at the same time. So in our sermon today, we'll learn more about how God works through painful, sinful human events to preserve the seed of the woman through one of the sons of Noah. We'll look closer at this final scene of Noah's, the blessing scene. It has three parts. Let's start with the first part, verse 1. It starts with a new humanity emerging. Look there in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I gave you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply and increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So emerging from the ark is this new humanity. Said there'd be optimism, but could you imagine how vulnerable they must have felt? Every other human being has died in the flood. All we have left is this one little family. Perhaps they thought, what, what will happen to us if we don't make it? In the vulnerability of coming out of an ark with no other humanity on the rest of the planet. When to this vulnerable situation, God gives a command and then he intervenes in different ways to protect them. Now, God's first act in the text is to give them a blessing out of his grace and goodness. This is the third time in Genesis that God has blessed mankind and says they're coming out of the ark. God is determined to bless humanity again. The rest of this first paragraph, though, revolves around two things. God does two things. First, he gives them commands, okay? And these commands are stated with emphasis at both the beginning and the end of the passage. I don't know if you saw that. But if you look, for instance, at, in verse 1, you'll see that he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill. Okay, those are the commands. And then down in verse 7, he, he says it in a very similar way, be, fruit, be fruitful, uh, fill, and multiply greatly. So he gives these commands to them. This command repeats the command given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Uh, so this is... Uh, in many ways, and a lot of the people who say this passage closely say this is like a new, uh, new Eden experience, sort of. Noah's like the new Adam. Noah's like the new head, representative head of humanity. Now, Noah's sinful. Okay, it's, it's a difference. 
But knows like the new representative of humanity from Noah will precede all people uh, afterwards. And uh, that's the command. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill. But next, in between those commands, in verses 1 and 7, through, in verses 2 through 6 there, God explains that what he will do to protect them and to prosper them as they come out of the ark. First, he places an inherent fear of humanity into the heart of every animal, reptile, and sea creature in verse 2. You could read about this there. He places this inherent fear in animals of human beings. I think the fear of mankind is normally present in all animals, except perhaps those animals who feel that their well-being is in danger, the well-being of their offspring, cubs, whatever you want to call them. So lions and bears and sharks normally flee men and women, even though they might stand a pretty good chance in a one-on-one fight. That's because of what God has done. They most certainly, as animals, don't group together into gangs or battalions to wage war against humanity, despite what some of the horror movies you may have watched uh, demonstrate. And later on, we see in verse 6, if an animal does take the life of a human being, that animal must be laid down. That's what the eternal covenant of Noah says in Genesis. If the animal takes the life of a human being, it should be killed. And so the first thing God does to protect humanity is he places this inherent fear in animals of human beings. Secondly, God explains uh, how he will provide for them. And one of the things he does here is he explains that now human beings can eat of the animal kingdom for nourishment and provision. Evidently, up to this point, men and women were vegetarians. But at this point, they're now, you know, God opens up meat in his provision for human beings coming out of the ark. Third, though, he protects human life not only from animals, but from other humans, from human murder in verses 5 and 6. And verses 5 and 6 become some of the most important or clear verses in all the Bible about capital punishment. In the original context, I think that the, the point of these verses, though, is to reflect God's desire to protect men and women. He does so by demanding severe judgment for those who would murder. This is different than like accidentally taking the life of someone. But if someone would uh, intentionally murder another, there's severe judgment that's given. Their life is also to be taken. Now, I think it's a great tragedy that in our society today, God's covenant with Noah is largely neglected. This command here, I think, is extended in the New Testament to the role of human government. This is not just something that we do in vengeance. Something human government should do. They, they do not bear the sword in vain, for instance, in Romans. And the New Testament also makes it clear that Christians must not avenge themselves for any wrongdoing, but leave room for God's wrath to avenge it. I think of Romans 12 and verse 19. I don't know if you know that passage or that verse. Romans 12, 19 says this. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. 
How often, Paul? Never. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance is not our concern, it's God's. And in some cases, it's also the work of human government, if they're following the scriptural covenant here in Genesis. And so God's protection here presents people and animals from killing people. Just stop and give a brief application here. Isn't it just like God to protect us in our frail humanity? Known as family come out of the ark, perhaps feeling vulnerable and frail. Perhaps you feel frail and weak today. You don't know how you're going to make it through a difficult matter. May I just remind you that there is grace and mercy in every storm that we pass through in life. And when our storm lifts and we take our first vulnerable steps, know that God's care and provision for his children is indisputable. This blessing scene starts with a new humanity emerging, protected and provided for by God. The blessing scene then continues in verses 8 through 17 with an eternal covenant being established. That's number two, an eternal covenant being established. Uh, There really is an emphasis on two words in the text in these two sections. The two words are establishment and sign. The first part of this passage is about the establishment of the covenant. The word establish is is mentioned in verse 8 and verse 11. We read through, you'll see that. So the first part's about the establishment of the Noahic covenant. And then from verses 12 through 17, the emphasis is on sign. And again, in verse 12 at the beginning and in verse 17 at the end, you see the word sign. So that part of the passage is about a special sign that God gives relating to this covenant. So let's look at the first section, starting in verse 8, the establishment of the covenant. It says, Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. The birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. So he repeats verse 9 there. I establish my covenant with you that, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. In this passage, we learn of another way that human beings would be protected by God. Not only were they vulnerable, perhaps, to animals and their attacks, and human beings who might attack them and wrongfully murder them, in this passage we see that without God's intervention, they would be vulnerable to divine punishment without God's covenant. And so in the text, God pronounces an unconditional covenant with humanity. The word covenant, of course, is a very important word in the scriptures. It's used all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, and it's first used of Noah. God's covenant with Noah is a covenant agreement that he makes with him and with every living creature that he will never again destroy the world with a flood. Now, that 
establishment of the covenant leads us to a visual sign of it. I'm sure many of you know what this is. Look down in your Bible, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I've set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So again, this section about the sign of the covenant, the sign of the Noahic covenant is a rainbow. And of course, the rainbows continue on from this moment, perhaps the first rainbow ever. But they continue on down to the present day when the rains stop. When the storms cease, the rainbow appears. And the rainbow is a symbol of God's favor and mercy upon this world. It's a reminder that God will not judge the world again like this. It's a pledge of God's mercy, and it proclaims to you and to humanity, if they would see it, it proclaims God's grace. Now, when God sees the sign, and it's interesting as you go through the text, that seems to be really emphasized here in the passage, that this rainbow is primarily for God to see. When God sees it, he will remember his promise and the eternal covenant that he made at this time with Noah. I think the phrase everlasting covenant is, is an important one. It uh, reminds us that this is a covenant that's going to go on forever and ever. And uh, there's another passage in the Old Testament where the author uses everlasting covenant to say that in the end, God's not going to judge the world by a flood because he made an everlasting covenant. The way he'll do so in the end is by fire. It's found in the book of Isaiah. But here the point is, God is not going to flood the world again, and the uh, rainbow is a sign to God that he, he, that he has done this. And so to this point in the story, as we're looking through it, everything appears to be going fairly well. God is protecting and blessing Noah and his family, and he even gives a covenant to confirm it. But then, perhaps years later, the new representative head of humanity falls or fails. His failure is in some ways like Adam and Eve's. Again, Noah was a sinner before this. But in some ways, it's similar to the garden. Uh, one of the ways it's similar is uh, he, he fails with fruit. Okay, as he failed in the garden with fruit, now he fails with the fruit of the vine, with wine. Perhaps it's also interesting, it's very interesting to me this week, that uh, like Adam and Eve in the garden, Noah is also shamed by his nakedness. So I think you've got these echoes of the garden and of Eden earlier in the stories that were told there. But I want to go through this passage, starting verses 18 through 29. The blessing scene, third, it ends with a twisted tale of curse and blessing. I mean, just an ironic, interesting twist in the story when you get down to verse 18. 
Let's read the beginning of the twisted story in verses 18 through 23. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Okay, so as we come to this text, it might be easy for us to focus primarily on the failure of Noah. His failure is obvious in this text. He becomes drunk and naked. The biblical authors, however, they emphasize more the failure of one of his sons. Biblical author, I mean Moses. (laughs) Moses emphasizes the failure of one of his sons, Ham. Some scholars here wrongfully suggest that there was something strange or wrong about the way Ham looks upon his father. To me, as I look at that, consider those views, there's no exegetical proof of that that I can find. This is just the normal word for saw. Indeed, I think Ham's fault can be found not just in the one verb, saw, but in the next, told. He saw and told, and it's the telling that, to me, is the bigger problem in the text. The publication of what his father has done. So in my opinion, Ham's telling his brothers adds further to the shame of his father. One commentator described it this way. He said, Ham's sin in not, is not honoring his father by demonstrating discretion and loyalty. Ham's sin is not honoring his father by demonstrating discretion and loyalty. Again, I want to stop and make an application, a careful application for our assembly at this point. And I'll just say this, from this story, this part of the story, I think we should all feel compelled to honor our parents as far as we can. I don't care what age you are. I think we should all feel compelled to honor our parents as far as we can. This does not mean that we condone their sinfulness or that we would never say anything condemning about their sinfulness. But we should never use their sin to mock or shame them. This past week when I was in Iowa, I got to catch up with an old friend, and it was really refreshing to spend some time with him. He's a new pastor. He's someone I formerly taught. And I had been aware, uh, because I know him well, I'd been aware for some time that my friend's father grown man, had just been exposed to be living a life of habitual sin as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I know this was very difficult for my friend. But I can say as I talked with him, it was so refreshing to hear that although he does not in any way condone the sin of his father, he still honors him in the way he talks about him. As I come to this story and consider Ham's action compared to Shem and Japheth, I just would encourage you, I think it's, it's always good to, to, be, to feel compelled to honor our parents as far as we can.
that leads us to Noah's response. And things really pick up here in verse 24. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his young, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Noah here responds mysteriously, right, with a curse and some blessings. His blessings on Shem and Japheth, I don't find to be difficult at all. Okay, the, the narrative explains it very clearly. They honor their father and how they take care of him. I will say, I think later on we're going to find out that Shem will be the son through which the seed of the woman will be propagated. Later on, people will come from Shem like Abraham and the patriarchs down to Jesus. And so their blessing in no way <coughs> is hard for us to understand. But the curse here and the repeated mention of Canaan instead of Ham is shocking to me. In our modern setting, uh, this sort of curse is perplexing, right? I want to point out a few things to you about the curse, cursed be Canaan language of this passage. First, do you recognize, if, if you've been paying attention to Noah's story, that cursed be Canaan are the first words that Noah speaks in all of Scripture? What an ironic set of words to lead with, right? Noah's done so much, but he's spoken so little. And so here he, he responds to what his son Ham did by cursing Ham's son, one of his sons, by the name of Canaan. That, you know, uh, concept, you know, Noah's first words are a curse on his grandson. That demands some sort of explanation. And so I, I want to give you a few possibilities here that I think are most likely, and I'm going to go through them fairly quickly, but I just would encourage you to stick with me for like a minute or two here. Okay. Why does Ham, or I'm sorry, why does Noah curse his grandson? Not Ham himself. Well, first, it may be that Canaan was there when his father Ham saw and told. He was complicit in the crime in some way or another. However, that's an argument from silence. The Bible does not say that he was there. We don't know. Okay, so I, uh, I, I don't take a lot of confidence in that proposal. Others believe uh, that the solution here is to know that Ham and Canaan are youngest sons. So, for instance, one, one man said this, Jim Hamilton, he said, the youngest son of Noah is responsible for the curse that is placed on his youngest son, or on his own youngest son. In other words, as only one of Noah's sons was disobedient, then only one of Ham's sons will be cursed. A good number of people believe this. I think it struggles. One of the ways it struggles is I'm not convinced that Ham is the youngest son of Noah. And still, I mean, was there some sort of lost ancient belief about the sins of the father affecting 
only one select son? I don't know. For me, that doesn't hold up very well. But let me tell you what I think this is. The other way to understand this is that Noah speaks prophetically here. Noah anticipates in Canaan the evil traits that marked his father, Ham. That's what I think it is. Noah, by the Holy Spirit, speaks prophetically about and addresses some of the, the sins that will be true of Canaan. Biblical revelation demonstrates that Canaan and his descendants, you can imagine, what, who do you think are the descendants of Canaan? Can you say it out loud? The Canaanites. Okay, the Canaanites, uh, Canaan and the Canaanites reproduce the same kind of corrupting and irreverent sins of their forefather Ham. And Moses' original readers knew that very well. They didn't like the Canaanites, right? For all the wickedness that they had done to them. So I, I'm sure none of them would lose any sleep for feeling sorry for Canaan and his descendants in this text. And so that's why I think the solution is, I think Noah speaks prophetically. He understands that this one son of Ham, Canaan, will reproduce the same sort of sins, and so he pronounces a curse upon him. Whichever way you take this, though, it is still a form of grace from God. Not all of Ham's sons or offsprings will be cursed. His other sons you can read about in the next chapter. Not all of them will be cursed. Just the ones coming through his son Canaan. And all that's left to tell in the story then is that Noah eventually dies. Verses 20 and 29 says, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years. And then he pulls out that phrase he used repeatedly before, and he died. Noah dies. The Noah story has been filled with ups and downs. The story of death and deliverance in the flood, and the story of curse and blessing afterwards. One leaves this story, I think, with a sense of God's amazing wisdom to purge the world of sin and to preserve hope for humanity in the sons of Noah. I think we learn from this story that even when our earthly existence ends, God's not done. He determined things, determines things in a way to bless more and more people. And we ask him in our frail humanity to honor his own sovereign name in all of our victories and in all of our failures as we look forward to the day when we will enjoy him forevermore. As I go through the Noah story, my greatest comfort lies in my good God, who throughout the 950 years of Noah's existence works in such a way to judge sin, yes, but to preserve hope for us and for anyone who become a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, it's been a delight to consider Noah's story 950 years, dramatic shifts and turns, including this one at the end where there's a curse that he places upon his grandson. But Father, we know in this day 
in our own day that blessing is often mixed with sadness and sorrow. Help us, Father. Help us in this moment to trust you and to thank you for your grace to us. Jesus truly is our only hope in life and death. We know that he has defeated sin and death, and we long for that day when all of sin and all of the consequences of our of humanity's sin is behind us. And we enjoy you in the purity of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We thank you and pray that you bless the end of our service for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.